Chapter Six of the Tavern Knight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Rick Cornwall. The Tavern Knight by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter Six: Champions in Misfortune. Through the streets of Worcester, the Roundheads dragged Sir Crispin and for all that he was as hard and callous a man as any that ever buckled on a cuirass, the horrors that in going he beheld caused him more than once to shudder. The place was becoming a shambles, and the very kennels ran with blood. The royalist defeat was by now complete, and Cromwell's fanatic butchers overran the town, vying to outdo one another in savage cruelty and murder. Houses were being broken into and plundered, and their inmates resisting or unresisting, armed or unarmed, men, women, and children alike, were pitilessly being put to the sword. Charged was the heir of Worcester with the din of that fierce massacre, the crashing of shivered timbers, as doors were beaten in, mingled with the clatter and grind of sword on sword, the crack of musket and pistol, the clank of armor, and the stamping of men and horses in that troubled hour, and above all rang out the fierce, raucous blasphemy of the slayers and the shrieks of agony, the groans, the prayers, and the curses of their victims. All this Sir Crispin saw and heard, and in the misery of it all he for the while forgot his own sorry condition, and left unheeded the pike-butt wherewith the Puritan at his heels was urging him along. They paused at length in a quarter unknown to him before a tolerably large house. Its doors hung wide, and across the threshold, in and out, moved two continuous streams of officers and men. A while Crispin and his captors stood in the spacious hall, then they ushered him roughly into one of the abutting rooms. Here he was brought face to face with a man of middle height, red and coarse of countenance, and large of nose, who stood fully armed in the center of the chamber. His head was uncovered, and on the table at his side stood the morion he had doffed. He looked up as they entered, and for a few seconds rested his glance sorely upon the lank, bold-eyed prisoner, who coldly returned his stare. "'Whom have we here?' he inquired at length, his scrutiny having told him nothing. "'One whose offence is too heinous to have earned him a soldier's death, my lord,' answered Pride. "'Therein you lie, you damned rebel,' cried Crispin. "'If accused, you must announce the truth. "'Tell Master Cromwell, for he had guessed the man's identity, "'that single-handed I held my own against you and a score of you curs, "'and that not until I had cut down seven of them was I taken. "'Tell him that, Master Psalm-Singer,' and let him judge whether you lied or not. Tell him, too, that you who have done, cried Cromwell at length, stamping his foot, peace, or I'll have you gagged. Now, Colonel, let us hear your accusation. At great length, and with endless interlarding of proverbs, did pride relate how this impious malignant had been the means of the young man Charles Stuart making good his escape, when otherwise he must have fallen into their hands. He accused him also of the murder of his son, and of four other stout, God-fearing troopers, and urged Cromwell to let him deal with the malignant as he deserved. The Lord General's answer took expression in a form that was little puritanical. Then checking himself, He is the second they have brought me within ten minutes charged with the same offense, said he. The other one is a young fool who gave Charles Stuart his horse at St. Martin's Gate. But for him again the young man had been taken. "'So he has escaped,' cried Crispin. "'Now God be praised!' Cromwell stared at him blankly for a moment, then. 
you will do well sir he muttered sourly to address the lord on your own behalf as for that young man of Vale, your master rejoice not yet in his escape by the same crowning mercy in which the lord hath vouchsafed us victory to-day shall he also deliver the malignant youth into my hands for your share in retarding his capture your life sir shall pay forfeit you shall hang at daybreak together with that other malignant who assisted charles at the st martin's gate i shall at least hang in good company said crispin pleasantly and for that sir i give you thanks you will pass the night with that other fool cromwell continued without heeding the interruption and i pray that you may spend it in such meditation as shall fit you for your end take him away but my lord exclaimed pride advancing what now crispin caught not his answer but his half-whispered words were earnest and pleading cromwell shook his head i cannot sanction it let us satisfy you that he dies i condole with you in your bereavement but it is the fortune of war let the thought that your son died in a godly cause be of comfort to you bear in mind colonel pride that abraham hesitated not to offer up his child to the lord and so fare you well colonel pride's face worked oddly and his eyes rested for a second upon the stern unmoved figure of the tavern knight in malice and vindictiveness then shrugging his shoulders in token of unwilling resignation he withdrew whilst crispin was led out in the hall again they kept him waiting for some moments until at length an officer came up and bidding him follow led the way to the guard-room here they stripped him of his back and breast and when that was done the officer again led the way and crispin followed between two troopers they made him mount three flights of stairs and hurried him along a passage to a door by which a soldier stood mounting guard at a word from the officer the sentry turned and unfastening the heavy bolts he opened the door roughly the officer bade sir crispin enter and stood aside that he might pass crispin obeyed him silently and crossed the threshold to find himself within a mean gloomy chamber and to hear the heavy door closed and made fast again behind him his stout heart sank a little as he realized that that closed door shut out to him the world forever but once again would he cross that threshold and that would be the preface to the crossing of the greater threshold of eternity then something stirred in one of that room's dark corners and he started to see that he was not alone remembering that cromwell had said he was to have a companion in his last hours who are you came a dull voice a voice that was eloquent of misery master stuart he exclaimed recognizing his companion so it was you who gave the king your horse at the st martin's gate may heaven reward you gad's wounds he added i had little thought to meet you again this side the grave would to heaven you had not was a doleful answer what make you here by your good leave and with your help i'll make as merry as a man may whose sands are all but run the lord general whom the devil roasts in his time will make a pendulum of me at daybreak and gives me the night in which to prepare the lad came forward into the light and eyed sir crispin sorrowfully we are companions in misfortune then were we ever companions in aught else come sir be of better cheer since it is your last night in this poor world let us spend it as pleasantly as may be pleasantly twill clearly be difficult answered crispin with a laugh were we in christian hands they'd not deny us a blackjack over which to relish our last jest 
and to warm us against the night air, which must be chill in this garret. But these crop ears... He paused to peer into the pitcher on the table. Water! Pah! A scurvy lot, these psalm-mongers! Merciful heaven, have you no thought for your end? Every thought, good youth, every thought, and I would fain prepare me for the morning's dance in a more jovial and hearty fashion than old Noel would afford me. Damn him! Kenneth drew back in horror. His old dislike for Crispin was all aroused by this indecent flippancy at such a time. Just then the thought of spending the night in his company almost effaced the horror of the gallows, whereof he had been a prey. Noting the movement, Crispin laughed disdainfully and walked towards the window. It was a small opening by which two iron bars, set crossways, defied escape. Moreover, as Crispin looked out, he realized that a more effective barrier lay in the height of the window itself. The house overlooked the river on that side. It was built upon an embankment some thirty feet high. Around this, at the base of the edifice, and some forty feet below the window, ran a narrow pathway protected by an iron railing. But so narrow was it, that had a man sprung from the casement of Christmas prison, it was odds he would have fallen into the river some seventy feet below. Crispin turned away with a sigh. He had approached the window almost in hope. He quitted it in absolute despair. Ah, well, said he, we will hang, and there's the end of it. Kenneth had resumed his seat in the corner, and wrapped in his cloak, he sat steeped in meditation, his comely young face seared with lines of pain. As Crispin looked upon him, his heart softened and went out to the lad, went out as it had on the night when first he had beheld him in the courtyard of Perth Castle. He recalled the details of that meeting. He remembered the sympathy that had drawn him to the boy, and how Kenneth had at first appeared to reciprocate that feeling, until he came to know him for the rackhelly, godless ruffler that he was. He thought of the gulf that gradually had opened up between them. The lad was righteous and God-fearing truthful and sober, filled with stern ideals by which he sought to shape his life. He had taxed Crispin with his dissoluteness, and Crispin, despising him for a milksop, had returned to his disgust with mockery, and had found a fiendish pleasure in arousing that disgust at every turn. Tonight, as Crispin eyed the youth and remembered that at dawn he was to die in his company, he realized that he had used him ill that his behavior towards him had been that of the dissolute ruffler he was become, rather than of the gentleman he had once accounted himself. Kenneth, he said at length, and his voice bore so unusually mild a ring that the lad looked up in surprise. I have heard tell that it is no uncommon thing for men upon the threshold of eternity to seek to repair some of the evil they may have done in life. Kenneth shuddered. Crispin's words reminded him again of his approaching end. The ruffler paused a moment, as if awaiting a reply or a word of encouragement. Then, as none came, he continued, I am not one of your repentant sinners, Kenneth. I have lived my life. God, what a life! And as I have lived, I shall die, unflinching and unchanged. Dare one to presume that a few hours spent in whining prayers shall atone for years of reckless dissoluteness? Tis a doctrine of cravens, who, having lacked in life the strength to live as conscience bade them, lack in death the courage to stand by that life's deeds. I am no such traitor to myself. If my life has been vile, my temptations have been sore, and the rest is in God's hand. But in my course I have sinned against many men. Many a tall fellow's life have I wantonly wrecked. Some, indeed, I have even taken in wantonness or anger. 
they are not by, nor were they, could I now make amends. But you at least are here, and what little reparation may lie in asking pardon I can make. When I first saw you at Perth, it was my wish to make you my friend, a feeling I have not had these twenty years towards any man. I failed. How else could it have been? The dove may not nest with the carrion bird. Say no more, sir, cried Kenneth, genuinely moved, and still more amazed by this curious humility in one whom he had never known other than arrogant and mocking. I beseech you, say no more. For what trifling wrongs you may have done me, I forgive you as freely as I would be forgiven. Is it not written that it shall be so? And he held out his hand. A little more, I must say, Kenneth, answered the other, leaving the outstretched hand unheeded. The feeling that was born in me towards you at Perth Castle is on me again. I seek not to account for it. Perchance it springs from my recognition of the difference betwixt us. Perchance I see you knew a reflection of what I once was myself, honorable and true. But let that be. The sun is setting over yonder, and you and I will behold it no more. That to me is a small thing. I am weary. Hope is dead. And when that is dead, what does it signify that the body die also? Yet in these last hours that we shall spend together, I would at least have your esteem. I would have you forget my past harshness, and the wrongs that I may have done you down to that miserable affair of your sweetheart's letter yesterday. I would have you realize that if I am vile, I am but such as a vile world hath made me. And tomorrow, when we go forth together, I would have you see in me at least a man in whose company you are not ashamed to die. Again the lad shuddered. Shall I tell you my story, Kenneth? I have a strong desire to go over this poor life of mine again in memory, and by giving my thoughts utterance it may be that they will take more vivid shape. For the rest my tale may while away a little of the time that's left, and when you have heard me you shall judge me, Kenneth. What say you? Despite the parlous condition whereunto the fear of the morrow had reduced him, this new tone of Galliard so wrought upon him then that he was almost eager in his request that Sir Crispin should unfold his story, and this the tavern knight then set himself to do. End of chapter 6 of the Tavern Knight Recorded by Rick Cornwall